Um, one of the things that God has blessed us with at Coastal is just a tremendous amount of college students coming from the peninsula. So, Andrew, I'm not even going to let you off the stage. You're just going to be one of many, hopefully. But uh, he's like, don't embarrass me. He doesn't like to be embarrassed. But uh, God has blessed us with students from the peninsula, from several of the colleges. And uh, many of them are getting ready to graduate. We were kind of teasing Andrew this morning. This is his last uh, week playing at Coastal as a college student, okay? So so if you're in the room, uh, would you do me a favor? And you're a senior. Besides Andrew, and last night I got shut out. I knew there were some seniors in the room, but they didn't want to stand, okay? Uh, but if you're a senior and you're getting ready to graduate, that's a great accomplishment, and you would be doing us a disservice if we couldn't celebrate with you. Uh, so would you do me a favor and stand, and we want to congratulate, senior in college, stand and congratulate you, okay? Well done. All right, thank you. Um, and... And Joey, uh, just tell your wife, who refused to stand last night, that I will get her back, okay? Because Joey's wife is graduating as well. So uh, do me a favor. We want to we pray over you. Um, you don't have to stand back up. But well done on hard work. And uh, uh, this past Friday night, we had a trivia night uh, that was a sponsorship to send our Honduras team away to help raise some funds. And actually, uh, it's my understanding that the college students actually won the trivia night. So at least we know that degree got them something of value, okay? So, uh, but uh, man, what a great accomplishment. And before I pray, I want to let church, as a church body, I want to let you know, you know, our students, first of all, students, when you're not here, we miss you. We really, we, we miss you. We love when you come back from summer break or Christmas break. But Coastal, I want to let you know, these students don't just attend, man. Many, many of them are plugging in. I mean, they're in the sound booth, children's mini greeting team, you know, missions, food pantry, stuff like that. And, and uh, man, it's just awesome when you guys are here and we love you. Okay, so let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the seniors that stood. There's, they're from all across different schools. There's probably some single parents that uh, worked hard to get their degree, God, an incredible accomplishment. I pray that you would use their education not only to provide good jobs, God. I know that's kind of the American dream. Hey, get your education, get a good job. But God, deeper than that, use their education understanding to spread the name and fame of Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you for the ones that you send our way at Coastal, God, that we get to make a small investment in them. And God, we, we kind of see ourselves as a missions church, you know, in that way. We, they come here, you send them here for a few years, and we send them out into the culture, Lord, to influence uh, people for the kingdom of God and the fame of Jesus. So uh, thank you, God, for the hard work of these students. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless them for it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, great stuff. Uh, we're going to continue in our series. We started a, a series last week. Um, I'm not a very creative pastor, okay? So we started a series last week called Romans. Do you like that? So uh, we're going through the book of Romans, and, uh, and we uh, unpacked it last week, and, and I know I heavied on you, and uh, we're going to kind of continue in that vein again this week, because I think it's important that we really drill down uh, on what the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to a church in Rome, uh, you know, the, drill down on the human condition and why it's important to understand the human condition before we can understand understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, so Romans chapter 3, if you have your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a chair in front of you, really would encourage you to get that handout out of the bulletin, follow along with me there, take some notes as God 
speaks to your heart. You always kind of remember more of what you write down, okay? And uh, my wife has used that tool for me getting things done around the house, okay? So uh, it's a great memory tool. In May of 1990, there was a cargo ship. The ship's name was the Hansa. The Hansa was transporting goods uh, from, uh, from, uh, from North South Korea to the United States. In the middle of its transport across the Pacific Ocean, it came across a large storm which washed over 21 large um, tractor trailer sized shipping crates washed over shore. In those 21 crates, five of the crates c- contained uh, floor-to-ceiling Nike tennis shoes. Well, these Nike tennis shoes, they were not tied together Okay, and so they got caught up in the Pacific currents, and there was a guy by the name of Steve Macliotti. He loved to scavenge the shores of the Pacific Northwest. He would do that on a regular basis, seeing what washed up on shore. To his surprise, on this one particular day, he, he began to scavenge the West Coast, and here he found hundreds of left-footed Nike tennis shoes. He went back the next day and found more, and the next day he found more. And after a week or so of this, in his apartment, he had 1,200, I'd like to say pair, but it wasn't pair, just left-footed Nike tennis shoes. Well, this kind of got out, and actually some local scientists got a hold of this, and they began to do a little research in trying to study the current flows of the Pacific Ocean. And they were wondering, and they were curious as to why left-footed Nike tennis shoes ended up there on the Pacific Northwest. After doing some study, they realized that because of the curvature of those tennis shoes, they went in one current, and their speculation was the right-footed tennis shoes probably went a different direction, got into a different current because of the slight curvature difference. So Steve just began to put the word out because he kind of networked with other scavengers, and sure enough, uh, several weeks later, some 1,200 Right-footed tennis shoes ended up in Alaska. And Steve and his scavenging friends arranged an appointment to reunite the shoes for some unknown reason. (laughs) You know, most of us in this room would admit and acknowledge, you know what, I'm a little messed up, right? There's a curvature in my moral compass, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm a, occasionally I sin. I don't do everything, right? I've never met an American that wouldn't acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a little off, you know. Some of us are more off than others, okay? I always say we're all broken. It's a matter of degrees. But, you know, God sees the human condition as a little more than just a little off. He sees it as just a little more than a twist of our moral compass, In fact, we're going to unpack the idea here this morning that Paul unpacks for us in this letter to the Roman church that it's it's far worse than you imagine. In fact, today's message is really as bad as it gets. What What we see is maybe a little off in our moral compass. God sees as sin, and our sin leaves us thousands of miles apart from what God's demands are. Not what you think, and not what I think, but what God thinks. And eventually, the curvature that you see is really a sin issue that God says leaves you thousands of miles from his demands of righteousness and holiness and perfection. 
And we're going to unpack this morning this idea that this holy God, the character of God that demands justice and holiness and perfection, leaves us as humanity in a very precarious place. And I started with this last week. We started talking about the human condition and its depravity and our inability to please a holy God. Now, I have skipped a couple chapters in this here this morning. The reason I did that is so that we're not going through the letter of Romans till 2016, okay? But my hope this morning is that as you leave here, you will engage with this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. My hope is this morning that you will spend some time this week reading Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, because Paul spends three chapters talking about the human condition. And my hope is as you engage with this letter that it will mortify you and your position before a holy God. My hope is that you will read these three letters and you will not feel that good about yourself. My hope is that you'll realize your desperation and need for a Savior. And so we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul, in his concluding thoughts on the human condition, says, What shall we conclude then? Do we, I want you to circle the word we there, and you'll notice uh, in your handout and on the screen, I'm actually taking this verse from the NIV. Now, I don't usually pick on translations. You guys know I like the NLT because I find it incredibly readable. But in translation, sometimes there are some small differences, and this one is important enough, I think, this morning to point out to you. So I want you to circle the word we. Do we have any advantage, and Paul shouts, not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So the question I want to start with this morning is, why am I circling we? Who is we? Who is Paul talking to? And Paul, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, has been building the case that the entire human race is under the penalty of God's wrath because of our sin. And Pastor Joey did a great job two weeks ago giving us some context and talking to us about how Paul is writing to a church in Rome that is filled with Jews and Gentiles. Now, I know in American culture, it's hard for us to even get our minds around, like, what's the big deal about that? It was a huge deal to them. Never before in, in, in human race had, had, had two culturally different groups worshipped the God of the universe together. And so Paul has been building this case to this church. First of all, he's saying those who are Gentiles, and in Bible times we would call them pagans that were non-God-fearers. He said they're under the wrath and the condemnation of God because of their sin. That would be obvious. But he said, you know, also Gentiles or or pagans that that were trying to worship God, they too are under the wrath of God because of sin. And then he picks on the Jews and he says, listen, you too, both the ones that are God-fearing Jews and non-God-fearing Jews, both of you are under the wrath of God because of sin. And then he says, and we. Now the NLT says, and we Jews. So it's, he's speculating back that he's talking again to the Jewish people. But you know what I think? After I did some reading and looking at this, I think he's talking to the church now. And we, church people, churchgoers. See, because he, he's, he's putting himself in with this group. And us church attenders... We're in a tremendous danger to think that somehow our religious duty, our showing up week in and week out, somehow that earns the favor of God. Because you somehow check the box on a week in, week out basis, right? 
And he says, listen, I want to warn we as well. We need to be reminded of our condition. I was talking to a friend of mine this week that's not a church, a regular church goer, and he said something very profound. He said, you know, your church people do the same stuff the rest of us do. (laughs) Now, I had two thoughts to that. One is, what a shame. What a shame. Because when you take the name of Jesus upon you, when you call yourself a Christian, your behavior needs to begin to change. Now, are we perfect? Of course not. We're still under sin's influence, but we should no longer be under sin's dominion. And so when we go out of these doors, man, we take the name of Christ upon us and people are watching us. But there's, that's one danger. But the other danger on the other side of the fence is somehow we think God is now happier with us because we've checked the box and we've attended. We've done all, you know, we've even, some of you in this room are like, I'm, I'm okay with God because I stroke a check. And Paul is reminding us that we too are under sin and, and we're, you know, and we have a, we're in a serious, serious condition before a holy God. And Paul says, and we too, and he uses the word, under the power of sin. And we looked at this last week. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, I don't have the verse in your notes, but he says in Romans 6, right, the wages of sin is what? How many of y'all know that verse? It's death. I mean, if that's, if that's where your life ends, under the power of sin. Now, you may say, oh, Pastor Sean, now, you know, a lot of times when we hear under the power of sin, under its dominion, you know what, in America, you know what our mind usually goes to? It goes to somebody like Hitler. Like, I, don't, I didn't turn out to be Hitler, right? In fact, whenever I preach on the doctrine of hell, he's the one name I can throw out there that we all agree he might be there, right? Not no one else, but yeah, right? Now, sin, that does not, the fact that we're under the power and the dominion of sin does not mean that we all turn out to be as bad as we could be. Does that make sense? But what it does mean is that sin affects and influences and has dominion over every part of our being. Every part. And Paul goes on to unpack that here as he's giving his concluding thoughts about the human condition. He actually, in a letter to the church of Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, in addressing this very same idea, Paul writes this, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were what? What's it say? Dead. You were spiritually dead in your sins. You were doomed forever, Paul says, because of your many sins. You used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan and the mighty prince of the power of the air. And he is a spirit at work in our hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil natures. Why? Because we were born with an evil nature. We are under God's what? You see, if, if you heard most of the preaching in the American church today, what do you hear so much about? You hear so much about God's what? Love. You can't understand the bigness of God's love until you understand the domination of sin in your heart and life. Church, I want to be very clear this morning. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are born into sin and we are dead in our sins. And a dead man needs what? What's a dead man need? He needs life. He doesn't need a doctor. He doesn't need to be better. He doesn't need to do good things. A dead man needs new spiritual life. 
And if you're here this morning and God is working in your heart and he's beginning to stir spiritual life and he's beginning to awaken your understanding to your need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all glory to God because that's the work of God who is the only one by the power of his spirit and the truth of his word that can give spiritual life. Me yelling at you ain't gonna do it, all right? Telling a funny story and having you raise your hand at the end of service, fill out a card. We do all that because we wanna follow up and make disciples. But I will tell you this, that doesn't give new life. It's the work of the spirit, period, that gives new life. And the problem with the church in America is we have not spent enough time on the depravity of the human race. We want to skip over that and get right to the good news of Jesus. We want to leave our church services feeling really good about ourselves. And so what has happened is we have made Jesus attack on. Boom. Just do good and add Jesus somewhere in your life and you'll be fine. And when we do that, we have a really small Savior. And we have a really small Jesus who's kind of like fire insurance. Like he, we tack him on to make sure that our eternity is taken care of. And the problem with that is our failure to understand that we need a spiritual rebirth. We need new life. We need a spiritual raising from the dead. We need a savior who is mighty to save indeed. We're dead in our sins and we are under its dominion. And Paul begins to detail the incredible influence, pervasiveness, and power of sin. And he does that by stringing together a bunch of Old Testament quotes. Most of them come from the Psalms, but not all of them. And so look with me at, at verse 10, because Paul begins to unpack just how bad it is. How bad is sin's dominion over us? And he starts with our very character. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says, As the Scripture says... No one is righteous. And what's it say next? Not even what? Not one. Let me clear something up here this morning. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and when we get to your funeral service, your anticipation is you're going to stand before the God of the universe, and you're hoping that your good deeds somehow outweigh your bad deeds. Americans are, are famous for this because we know we're not that bad. No, let me tell you something. The demand of the scriptures is not that you stand before God somewhat good. The demand of the scriptures, according to the Bible, is when you stand before God, you better stand there perfect, righteous, without any sin, never having an impure motive, thought, action, word, or deed, ever. And the Bible's very clear. None of us gets out of that. We, we, no one's righteous, not even one. No one, verse 11, is truly wise. No one is what? None of you, in the, even those of you in this room are now God seekers, right? You didn't start out that way. You started out doing your own thing. And if you're here this morning and you're on the journey to seeking God, that is because of the work of God in your heart and life. I remember that day for me, right? I remember it like it was yesterday. Or it was like, some, it was almost like a physical scales fell off my eyes and I began to see things new. It was the work of God. But in my own condition, verse 12, all have turned away. 
All have become useless. He's talking spiritually. No one does good. Not a single one. Have you ever heard the statement or the question someone asks you? Hey, man, why do, why do bad things happen to what? Good people, right? You know, the problem, you know the problem with that question? The premise is wrong. Now, let me tell you something, church. I don't want you to go into a, in a hospital room or maybe someone lost a kid or a loved one or whatever and going, well, we're not basically. It doesn't work there, okay? But on a philosophical level, maybe in a moment when there's no pain going, you've got to delve into that question, see? The premise is wrong. What sinful, evil people really deserve is the judgment of God, period. The wrath, that's his first three chapters of the letter of Romans. Paul's laying out every single one of you is under the wrath of God. That is what you deserve. Because you haven't sought for God, you haven't done things right, you do things your own way. Your bent is to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do them. And so what you really deserve is the wrath of God. He's saying no one naturally seeks God on their own. Some of you say, well, I've done some good things. Pastor, I mean, really? I mean, give me a break. I stopped and helped somebody change a tire this week. Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet Isaiah says, All of us has become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags. Why? Because they're tainted. We're all tainted. Or even, even when we do something that we think we're trying to do good, probably has tainted motives to make us look better. And so sin has dominion over our character. Paul goes on to say sin, sin has dominion over our speech. He says, verse 13, their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. You ever, you ever had a rodent die in your house? Have you ever had that happen? Like, what is that smell? All right. It's a great illustration. Paul says, the speech of the human race is like a decaying carcass in the nostrils of God. Why? Because their tongues, man, they're filled with lies. They, snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. I spoke on this a few weeks ago in our not, uh, not just another series. I said, you know, we talked about how we were to speak to one another. To, and so I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but, you know, I, I really unpacked that idea there. But have you ever, uh, you ever had something happen in your life, and then when you got around a new audience, you embellished the story just a little bit to make yourself look any better. Anybody ever done that? Like two of us, okay? I've done it. I call it pastoral license when I'm telling a story up here, but yeah, just kidding. We've all done it, right? I think probably every single one of us in this room would acknowledge, you know what, Pastor, I, I probably told a little white lie. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that God is taking his people to a place that's perfect, a place called heaven where there will be no sin ever, ever again. And the problem with that is God can't let liars into his place. Because we've already seen what one little lie does. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the only hum human that ever walked on planet Earth that could do things without sin. And yet they, they disobeyed God, they fell into sin, and within one generation they went from liars to murderers. Within 
A family generation, the kids were killing each other. Read it for yourself. So we're in a big trouble. Now, I'm not saying that every lie comes to the extreme end of consequences. I'm going to make a, a, a statement that I'm not sure is correct, but probably not. But I don't know, really, from the standpoint of God, the damage that the tongue can do with a little white lie. He goes on to say, man, cursing and bitterness. Sin has dominion over our mouths. It has dominion, Paul says, over our conduct. Verse 15, he says, they rush to commit murder. Destruction, misery, it always follows them. They don't know where to find peace. I would imagine most of you are in this room are going, ha! Gotcha, Pastor Sean, I never committed murder. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. Verse 21, he says, uh, You've heard, heard that the law of Moses says, Do not murder. If any of you commits murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the high council. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Now, some of you here, uh, let, me, let me clear up a misnomer right away. Some of you are like, I thought Jesus was taught the whole love of God thing. All right. Now, Jesus came to make sure we understood what the judgment of God would look like, partly. He did do the love of God thing as well. When I was a kid, uh, your older versions of the Bible, like especially the King James Version, they used the word fool here, right? So if you, if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the judgment of hell. And so when I grew up, I was, had the false understanding for much of my lifetime that you, you, could, you, you could call anybody anything you wanted except the word fool, right? That was the word, right? But you could be driving down 17 and call people whatever else you wanted, just not the word fool, right? And so the point is, it's not about the word that you use. The issue that Jesus is teaching us here is that every human being on planted, planet earth is created in the image of God and is uniquely special to the God of the universe. And when you choose to call someone else a name, you choose to belittle them for whatever reason you think that they need to be belittled, you are trampling over the image of God in that person and you are now on the pathway to murder because you don't see that person as important and God does. It's the beginning. Now, um, what did I say at the beginning? We're all broken. It's a matter of degrees, right? I've never murdered. Man, we murdered with our words. I've shared, I've shared with you guys some of my personal stories, even my own children, man, where I've ripped their hearts out. And who knows the damage I've done? One of the things I hate about some of the things I do with coaching and teaching and preaching is like how many words I use because I'm like, man, I know I say some stupid ones. Sometimes just in passing, maybe to some of y'all. Maybe I've said something to you, like, I can't believe he said that to me. I probably don't even remember it. Man, there's a great danger in that. Because sin has dominion over our words. Paul fin finishes, he cuts straight to the chase, right? He cuts here in the verse 18, he cuts straight to our motives. Even our motives, man, are under the dominion of sin. He says this, they have no fear of God at all probably seen the bumper sticker <clears throat> on back of people's cars that say, if you say there's no God, you better be right. 
You ever seen a bumper sticker? It's a little bit harsh, maybe, but there's a lot of truth in that. Psalm 53.1 says, Only fools say in their heart, there's no God. Biblical definition of a fool is a person who says in their life and in their heart, there's no God. Now, my gut tells me that most of you in this room would not say there's no God verbally. I want to tell you something. Every time we disobey God's word, we do things the way we want to do them with our actions. We say with our actions, there's no God because I'm not going to answer for this behavior. I'm not going to stand before God and give any kind of answer for my life. This past week with the horrible tragedy up in Boston, our president rightly said that these offenders will feel the full weight of justice. I'll tell you, when he said that, man, it sent chills up my spine. What an awesome statement. The President of the United States saying the full weight of the resources of the United States of America, there will be justice for this that was done. And over the last few days, man, we saw the, the uh, talent of our peacekeeping forces, our police officers, and our fire department, and our first responders, man, as they worked for justice. Man, it was awesome. But you know, there's something much, much weightier than the U.S. judicial system. And it is the justice of our God who demands perfection of you and you and you and you and you and me. And I want to tell you something, without an appropriate fear of God, a culture, and individuals, and people, man, we will run around and we will do whatever we want to do. And there is something really healthy about having an appropriate fear of God. Some of you in this room, you're saying, Pastor, what a depressing message, man. I mean, this is like two weeks in a row. I mean, I... I come to church to be encouraged. I mean, you know what I went through this week? It was a tough week. I came here to be encouraged. Church, I want to be honest with you. As I've been meditating and praying and reading Romans over and over and over for the last year, year and a half, preparing for this, I'm not sure that two weeks is long enough to shake us out of our stupor. I'm not sure that two weeks of meditating and contemplating the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God and the character of God is really enough for us to to undo a lifetime of understanding of the gospel. Because we got too many people to just tack on Jesus onto their life. And we got to understand that we need a mighty Savior, but you can't get there until you understand the mighty judgment, wrath, and holiness, and righteousness of God and your position under those characteristics of God. First and foremost, and I've heavied on you guys for the last couple weeks on purpose. I heard a story this week of a helicopter pilot by the name of Ian McConnell. Ian McConnell was a uh, uh, was stationed 
in Alabama on August 30th, 2005. He got the call. Him and his crew were to begin to, to do operations for Hurricane Katrina relief efforts in 2005. Him and his crew were responsible to help keep five H-60 helicopters airborne at all times around the clock to help save stranded people. McConnell says that their crew went right to work and they began to airlift stranded people from rooftops and of windows and began to deliver them to the Superdome, to the helipad. He said, you know, things were going great at first. But he said, then he, he began to grow discouraged. He said, our first three missions, we were able to save 89 people. He said, but on our fourth mission, man, frustration began to grow. He says, because we didn't save anyone. And he said, it wasn't that there was nobody to save. There were dozens of people who needed pickup. The problem was they refused. And as we would show up, they, they would say, listen, if you just bring us food and water, to which we'd say, you're trying to live in unhealthy conditions, and the floodwaters from the hurricane are going to stay high for many, many days, maybe even weeks. Yet they refused help. And McConnell said, man, me and my crew, we began to get frustrated and angry since we had used time and fuel and we had even put our individual selves at risk in our rescue attempts. And he said, I began to feel like these people were ungrateful. He said, but after I got away from the situation, I kind of debriefed it in my mind. He realized, I, he said, I began to realize they weren't ungrateful. The problem was they didn't know how desperate their situation was. He said, it wasn't until we got up over their rooftops and we saw water everywhere that we understood how desperate their situation was. Church, I've preached this for two weeks in a row because I want you to grasp how desperate your situation really is before a holy God. I'm pleading with you this morning. You can't know the good news until you first understand where you are and how bad the news really is for you on your own. And God's word says it's really that bad. Your situation as a sinner is graver than I fear many of you realize. And then Paul gives his final condemnation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He, he goes back to the law of Moses. I wish I had more time to unpack this. I don't, but he says this. He says, obviously, the law applies to those whom it was given for its purposes is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Remember last week we talked about general revelation, that people should be able to look at creation, know there's a creator, and that's enough to condemn us before God. Every human being will stand before God without excuse. But God also sent special revelation. It started with the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's character. The Ten Commandments let us know who God is, and as we read the Ten Commandments, we should recognize, I can't keep a one of them. I make idols, I worship things other than God, I, you know, I don't worship him as I should, I covet my, na my neighbor's stuff, and on and on it goes. I can't keep a single one of the Ten Commandments. And Paul says because of that, every single person will stand condemned before God, fully deserving the wrath of God. 
The law of God reflects how sinful we are. The the law reminds us of our complete inability to even keep one command. The law reminds us how mankind's situation is incredibly desperate. The law reminds you how desperate your situation is before a holy God. And this morning, I want you to leave here a little bit hopeless apart from the gospel. Uh, In the late, mid-1800s, there was an evangelist by the name of D.L. Moody. He was probably the Billy Graham of his day. D.L. Moody was asked by the warden of a large prison in New York City to speak to the inmates. When he got to the prison, there there was no chapel, there was no room big enough to hold all the inmates, and so when he got there, They weren't sure where D.L. Moody was going to preach to the prisoners. So what they decided was for him to preach at the end of the gangway. And so he stood at the end of the gangway. He couldn't see any of the prisoners. He didn't know if anyone was listening. And so he, he preached the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't sure if anyone heard him. And so after he got done preaching, he asked if he could have permission to just go down cell by cell and meet with each of the inmates individually. And as he began to go cell by cell, you know what he discovered? He soon discovered that no one was even listening to him. And so then he began to take an interest in the men individually. And he would ask them what they were in for. And he said he became even more discouraged as each individual man declared their innocence. They would insist that the only reason they were incarcerated is someone had borne false witness against them or there was a mistaken identity or a judge or a jury was prejudiced against them. Each one would give some story about why they were unjustly incarcerated. And Moody began to grow discouraged. He said, I was discouraged until I got to the last cell block. When I got to the last cell block, there was a man who was down on his knees, covered up in his elbows, covered up with his hands, tears streaming down his face. Moody asked him, my friend, what is your trouble? And he looked up with despair and remorse and in tears. And he said, my sins are more than I can bear. Why so negative the past couple weeks, Pastor Sean? Because until you come to this conclusion in your own life, until you agree with this inmate, my sins are more then I can bear. You are not ready to hear the gospel, which means what, church? Good news. Until you come to the conclusion that my sins are more than I can bear, are you ready to hear the message that I've got really good news for you? 
Someone bore them for you. And until you understand where you are before a holy God, that message will make little sense to you. Let's close with prayer. been a Christian for a long time. And in a moment like this, even as a believer, I go, God, my sins are more than I can bear. And in a moment of conviction and repentance and sorrow, God, I I bow a knee and I thank you for the hope of the sin bearer. Your son, Jesus Christ. And God, forgive us for the times we take that message so lightly. All too often, I'm like the inmate that didn't even hear the story, God. Too busy trying to justify myself. God, I, I think the beginning of a great spiritual awakening is when a church full of people begin to cry out, God, my sins, they're more than I can bear. Because at that moment, we're ready to hear the good news. And so God, as your people this week, I pray that you'll prepare our hearts for the rest of this letter that sets us free. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Marty, if you do me a favor, all right? Marty, I'm going to Marty stand. A lot of you are like, who's Marty? Okay. Marty's that guy that yells amen a lot. Okay, so Marty, stand up for me. Stand up for me, okay? Marty's one of the guys that's heading up a prayer team for us. Marty, I'm going to have you sit over here, okay, just at the corner. Uh, I know Molly's on that team. There's some others. I, I don't know everybody, so if I start calling names, I'll forget somebody. But uh, if you're here this morning, you'd just like to pray with someone. As uh, I was talking and the spirit was moving, you're like, man, my sins are more than I can bear. Marty's going to sit up here, be up here on a regular basis, him and somebody from his team, man. Just grab them. Pray with them after the service, okay? It's a great opportunity to do some extra business with God if that's what you sense God is doing, okay? So this morning's a great morning for that. Uh, you just come meet with him. I know he don't mind hanging around, talking to you, and praying with you. Uh, church is our offering time, and if you're a guest with us, please don't feel any obligation to give money. We are not after your money. We're so grateful you're here this morning. I pray that God's spirit will work on you and your heart and my heart. And uh, we'll recognize our need for Jesus. But this is one of the ways we worship God. And if you'd like to join us in that, uh, uh, man, and we'd love for you to join us in worshiping God through giving. As a guest, I'd love to have your tear off if you just fill that out. And uh, we want to send you a thank you card for coming. And then Donnie is going to introduce us to a great new song this morning. Okay, Donnie. <laughs>